so she looks at me and asks me how I'm doing. And I said, I'm doing pretty good. I'm really tired lately, but I've been busy. And I just had a physical and my, my doctor said, you're in pretty good health, but you have an iron deficiency. And this woman looks at me. And if there is a face that you can give that looks like death, that's the face she gave me. And she said, I think maybe you should go get checked out by a gastrointestinal doctor as soon as possible. And it scared the living crap out of me. Welcome, everybody, to Scatterbrain Podcast. This is Garth Heckman, your host. And today I'm doing something a little different. And if you're an entrepreneur, I think you're going to get something out of this. And if you're not, I still think you're going to get something out of this. And I just want to say straight up, this might be a little longer than normal, but it's because it's my story. And why am I sharing my story? Well, I don't want to, to be honest with you. I've had a lot of people ask me to share my story. And I feel really uncomfortable. And I have self-reflected many times to try to figure out why I feel uncomfortable sharing my story. I think possibly it's because I don't want to sound like a hero or like I'm anybody special, because that's just not the case. Especially because I've gone through this journey with many people who've had to deal with what I've dealt with. And many people have not been as fortunate as I have been. So I'm going to share my story. I'm going to be as honest as possible. Maybe some new things will come out as I'm talking. But I think you'll get something out of it. And at the end, I'm going to share with you how I got through what I went through. So let's get started. And so it was the year 2007. I know that's a while back for some of you. But I was in the middle of doing weightlifting and I started to do a little bit of MMA and I got a hernia and it sucked. And so I went into a doctor and he checked me out, said, you're going to have to have surgery. I didn't have health insurance, so that set me back about $14,000. But I thought, okay, that's taken care of. Let's keep going. And over the next year or so, I just had different problems with my stomach, with my digestion, with my bowel movements. And I started to feel like I was wearing down more and more and more and more. And to a point where I started to lose a lot of weight. In fact, I couldn't keep weight on. To the degree that I would actually get up in the morning, I would go to my local grocery store and buy a big bag of Swedish fish candies. I don't know if you know what they are, but I would eat this like three pound bag of fish uh, throughout the whole day just to put extra calories in me. And uh, it just didn't seem to help. I just could not keep my weight up. So I finally go into my doctor and I get a physical and he does a complete physical to the degree that I, I think I need one. And he comes back with some of the blood work and he says, well, you're doing, your, your health's great, your blood pressure, everything's fantastic, but you're anemic. You have very low iron. He said, I think that's why you're feeling so run down. So take some iron supplements. You should be fine. So I thought, okay, no problem. Went out, bought some iron supplements, started to take them for a couple of weeks, but I still didn't feel... I didn't feel a lot better, to be honest with you. All of my symptoms really didn't change much. I had a little bit more energy, but the truth is, is I was still pretty much the same. So one day I'm in the gym, and it's, <clears throat> it's like September of 2008 now, and there are two ladies there that I always talk to and hang around with, 
And uh, we're talking, and they said, hey, we haven't seen you much during the summer. I said, oh, I've been really busy traveling, speaking. And the one said, so how are you feeling? And the way she even asked the question threw me off just a little bit. I told her, you know, I haven't been feeling the best, but, you know, my digestive system's messed up, and I think it's because of my hernia surgery. And I just told her I feel run down, and I had a physical, and they said my iron was low, but all in all, I seem to be in pretty good health. And this woman looks at me, and if there's a face that you can give, like you're scared to death for someone's life, like the face of death, this woman gave me that face. And she looked at me and she said, I really think you should go get checked out by a gastrointestinal doctor. And it so freaked me out. I just There was just something in the way she said it and the way she looked. I hadn't even worked out yet, but I kind of panicked. And I said, yeah, okay. And I went and grabbed my gym bag, and I went home, and I looked up a number to a gastrointestinal doctor and called him. I got the front desk, and the lady said, why are you calling? And she's asking me a few questions, and she said, well, what are your symptoms? So I'm sitting there like an idiot because now all of a sudden I can't think of them. And I start to rattle them off, and she says, uh, I think you need to come in, like, today. And I'm like, oh, Okay. And so I, I show up there. I'm the last appointment of the day. The doctor takes me into the room, gives me a real quick uh, run through, looks at my eyes, looks at my stomach, asks me some questions, and then says, well, you either have uh, diverticulitis, and I'm, I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, or cancer, or something known as sprue or spree or something like that. To, again, I don't remember. But I remember leaving going, well, I know I don't have cancer, so I probably have one of these other two things. And he said, but we're going to do a colonoscopy. So this was on a Friday. He said, you know, come in on Monday and we'll do this colonoscopy. So Monday comes and my wife drives me there. I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of a colonoscopy, but they're awesome. And so he, this doctor has absolutely no bedside manners, but he's a genius. He's not funny. He doesn't smile. He's not personable. He just does his job, but he does it really well. So he starts to give me the colonoscopy, and, and uh, he's only a, a few inches in, and he stops, and he starts to use these big words, and I, I, I'm like, well, what, what is this? What are we talking about? And he goes, well, that's a tumor. You have a cancerous tumor about 17 centimeters, which is a little bit bigger than a softball. And at that point, the world just kind of stopped. I don't think anybody's ready to hear the word cancer. I know I wasn't. But, you know, they say the, the room starts to spin, <laughs> and it definitely started to spin. So they wheeled me out into another room. My wife's sitting there. They tell her. She's on the phone starting to call my family and my kids and her parents. And it's just funny because when you look back on it, I had all these symptoms that I didn't know that had anything to do with colon cancer. I mean, I had uh, my, my fingernails were brittle, my calluses were brittle, the, the calluses on my feet were brittle, my hair was dry and brittle. And weird as it might sound, for about six months before this, I have a, a golden retriever, and he would come up to me and he would nudge my shirt up on the left-hand side and lick my stomach near my belt line, which is right where the tumor was. And, and when I told my oncologist uh, at one point, I said, you're going to think I'm nuts. But I told him, and he said, no, no, no. He said, I hear that all the time. 
He said, animals can pick up when you're sick. And he said, many dogs can smell cancer. And he said, I'm sure that's what was going on. Wow. So I have to go in for surgery. I have colon cancer, stage three. I go in the very next week. They cut me open, cut me from about my sternum down about three, four inches past my belly button. They remove the tumor. I take about, oh, two to three weeks to heal up, and then I have to start eight months of chemo. And I don't know <laughs> if you've ever gone through chemo, but I can't, I couldn't cuss enough to tell you how bad it is. So I go through eight months of chemo, and it's brutal. I mean, it is brutal. Uh, during this time, my business starts to falter. People start to leave, you know, friends, network. Nobody wants to see someone die. So everyone kind of just pulls away. My parents, when they found out I had cancer, they were living in California. They moved back to Minnesota and tried to help out with the family. In fact, they did. They, it was amazing. They were unbelievable. And so I get through it. And after my last chemo, it's a full eight months, I start the road to recovery. Things are looking good. And for the next 15 months, I feel invincible. I'm back in the gym training. I'm getting ready to do some more powerlifting meets. I feel like a bona fide rock star. I, I just feel amazing. So 15 months after my last chemo, I go in. I'm, I'm having a checkup every three months, blood work and, and uh, MRI. And I go in. I sit down at the, uh, inside the little office with the doctor, and he comes walking in. And I'm sitting down with a chair that's against the wall in a small room, and he looks at me, and he says, well, it's back. And I'm thinking, what's back? The McRib? That's great. I love the McRib. I, I can't wait. And I, had, I go, what's back? What do you mean it's back? And he goes, the cancer's back. I said, okay. Uh, and I literally stop, and I look behind me. It's like he's talking to somebody else. But there's nobody else in the room. I'm sitting against the wall. You know, I look over my shoulder like, who's he talking to? And it's me. He's talking to me. And I go, okay, so where is it? He said, well, we're pretty sure it's in your liver, but I'm going to send you to a specialist uh, who uh, specializes in liver cancer at a different hospital. This guy's just a genius. He's got more letters after his name than an alphabet. And so... I go home, I tell my wife, I don't really know much, but we're going to go see this specialist. So first I call and he says, well, you have to get a full body MRI, head to toe. So we set that up and I go through this MRI. And as always, you have to wait a few days, which feels like eternity. Now, one thing I need to add is after hernia surgery and having, you know, that $14,000 bill, I did end up getting myself some insurance, but it was really the lowest grade possible insurance you could get. The highest deductibles, the highest payment for medications, everything. So, and I'm thankful, but through the first cancer, I couldn't work much. And my debt increased quite a bit, living expenses, not being able to work, not being able to travel and speak. And so I just decided, okay, here we go again. And, you know, there's so many thoughts that go through your head, but Again, I don't have any questions, or I don't have any answers to any of my questions yet until I meet with this, this new doctor. So we go in and uh, wait in the waiting room. Again, time now seems like forever. Go in, meet the guy. 
He says, hey, I've got your MRI on this CD. Let's look at it. And so we're in this small little room. We try to load it into the computer, and, and it won't load, and it won't play. And he's frustrated. I'm frustrated. I'm like, come on, just, just tell me. And he goes, well, let's go out to the other computer out in the main area where there are different nurses and doctors. It's not in the waiting room, but it's back where all the other you know, people are hanging out. Plops into that computer. It starts to play. And he explains, okay, this is the MRI. Now starting in your head, you can go see your brain down through your neck, the spinal cord, down through your lungs, rib cage. And then he goes, here's where we get to the liver. When we get to the liver, all of a sudden this big white spot shows up. And then as the MRI goes through your body, then it slowly starts to disappear. And he said, so that's, that's where the disease is at. He said, let's go back to my office. So we go back to the office. My wife's with me. We sit down. And my doctor is facing me, sitting to the left. My wife is sitting to my right. I'm in the middle. And he starts to talk. And he says, well, it's liver cancer. It's stage four. And I, my mind just starts to travel. I mean, I, I, I'm not really hearing anything until he says, survivability is about five years. And I all of a sudden feel like, you know, I'm the third grader. You know, I, I literally raise my hand up in the air like I have a question. And he stops and looks at me and he goes, yes. And I go, you mean the cancer will only survive for about five years? Well, the funny thing is, is yeah, it, it, it is only going to survive five years because you're going to be dead in five years and the cancer will die with you. And uh, I said, so what do you mean five years survivability? He goes, well, he goes, you're looking at maybe five years. You have a 50-50 chance of living five more years. And as I, you know, learned more and studied more and asked more questions, I found out really probably only about two and a half years. Now, I'll back up saying that when I was going through colon cancer, I did chemo with a woman who had liver cancer. And I saw what it did to her, and she didn't make it. So as he's saying this, again, my mind just travels off. I'm, I'm just hearing white noise. But I notice as he's talking to me, he reaches over to a Kleenex box and he just starts pulling out Kleenex one after another. Boom, 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 boom. And in my head, I'm thinking he's going to do some illustration like these are the cancer cells and he's going to throw them up in the air or something. I don't know. I'm just, I'm not hearing a thing, but I'm seeing them. And he grabs all these Kleenex up and he reaches across me and hands them to my wife, which is the first time I turned and looked at her. And all of a sudden, it's like the volume switch went on. She is wailing. She is bawling, snot, tears, the whole works. I mean, she's loud. I didn't even hear it until I looked at her and saw him handing her the Kleenex. And one of the things that people with cancer deal with is guilt. And it sounds weird, but you feel guilty because of everything you're putting your family through. What I'm going to put my wife through, my boys, what I'm going to put my parents through again. And it's just, it's something that you don't expect you're going to have to wrestle with. But there I am looking at my wife, lose it because I have less than five years. And what do you do? Well, I said, so what do you do? And he said, well, we need to get you in for surgery right away this next week. And I said, okay. He said, we'll do surgery and we'll see how much of the cancer we can get. And then you'll have to start a very rigorous, rigorous uh, chemo cycle. And it's probably going to be about seven months long. And he said, I'll let you talk to your oncologist about that. So I'll jump ahead. When I talked to my oncologist, he said, well, chemo for liver cancer is 
probably the most brutal chemo you can go through, which to me seemed impossible because I'd already gone through chemo with colon cancer, and that was brutal. I mean, that tore me apart. There are all these things that you go through with, with cancer that you don't realize until you're there. And, and some of the things are, you get these triggers. I mean, first of all, there's going to be endless vomiting. There's going to be endless diarrhea. Uh, it, it, you can't, you know, you're going to poop your pants a lot, have a lot of bloody noses. Food's going to taste like crap. And then you get these triggers where you're going to be eating a food and you're going to vomit it up and you're going to be like, never can eat that food again. And so to this day, I can't eat pizza out of a cardboard box. I can't eat Taco Bell. I, you know, I can't eat uh, caramel corn. I can't, they're just, just different things that you're not ready for. And in fact, during chemo, you almost have to drive different ways to get to the, to the chemo clinic because just the drive and just being used to it, you start to get sick even just driving there. And, and so it's, it's a lot to deal with. But anyway, so I walk out of that doctor's office. My wife and I are not saying a word. We get in the car and we start driving and my wife says, you need to call your parents. So in the car, I put them on the phone again, feeling incredibly guilty. And I, I get them on the phone and I said, well, I got the report. I have liver cancer. They want to do surgery Monday. And I said, listen, they're, they're now living back in California. They just moved back from Minnesota, where they had come for two years to help me get through colon cancer. They now moved back, and I'm laying this on them. And I'm like, look, I don't know what's going to happen, but you know, don't you don't have to come right now. Just I have liver cancer. I have surgery in a couple days, and then we'll figure out what to do from there. Just hold tight. Don't worry about it. And I hang up the phone. Still in the car, still driving. My wife looks at me and says, you need your parents here. And I'm like, yeah, I, I, I can't do that to him. I just can't do it to him. And she says, listen, I need your parents here. And you need your parents here. Call them back and tell them. So, you know, in the conversation we just had, they asked me what the prognosis or, you know, what the outcome of this was going to be. And it's, it's really not easy to tell your parents, well, I'm looking at less than five years. So with that in mind, I'm like, okay, I'll call them and I'll just politely suggest maybe they could come for surgery. So it's now 10 minutes later, and I call them back, and my mom picks up the phone, and I said, hey, uh, for what it's worth, I'm sitting here thinking that maybe it would be nice to have you here for surgery. And I I said, you know, if you can't make it, it's okay. I just, it, it would be nice to have you here. And my mom, you know, my parents are amazing. They truly are. My mom said, honey, as soon as we hung up the phone, we called the realtor, put the house on the market, we're packing our bags, and we're flying out tonight. Now, what kind of parents do that, really? You know, they hadn't even moved into their new place. They're turning around and moving back to Minnesota for this hellacious journey. And so we begin. Now, this is 2010. I find out. I have surgery two days later. And a couple weeks after surgery, I get this wonderful infection called C. diff. If you're not aware of it, uh, good. That means you, you haven't had it or no one you know has had it. But it's a bacterial infection, and it's in your colon, sometimes other places, but mine was in my colon. And it can kill you. 
So I have to go back into the hospital for about 10 days. I got to get healthy so that I can then rest up a couple more weeks to then start chemo. So now we start chemo. It's about the end of October. And it is absolutely, it's horrendous. I don't know how else to say it. Again, like I said before, there aren't enough swear words for me to tell you how bad chemo through liver cancer is. But I've made it up in my mind that I'm going to go through the whole seven months. I'm going to I'm going to do whatever it takes. Now, here's what happens to most people. They go a few months and their body breaks down so bad because of the chemo that they have to take a couple months off to rest back up to get strong enough to go back to doing chemo again. And so what happens is it's cyclical. You do two months on, two months off, and you never really get rid of the cancer. And what can happen over time is it just kind of extends the misery and allows you to live maybe a few extra years. But in return, it turns everything inside of you to spaghetti. In fact, they call it the spaghetti factor. And uh, you literally just start to get eaten up inside by the chemo, more so than even the cancer. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get through it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get through these seven months. I'm going to do whatever I need to do. And so halfway through the journey of chemo, I continue to get more tests, more tests. And one particular day, I go in with all these tests. I get the results back, and I don't tell my wife, but I'm reading the results, and I'm, I'm starting to panic inside. And I think I know what they're saying, but I'm not real sure. But my neighbor across the street is a nurse. So I wait till my wife goes to sleep, and I run across the street, and I pound on the door. And the woman answers the door. Her name's Jackie. And I show her the results, and I start talking to her about it. And I said, what? What is, what is this exactly saying? I think I know what it's saying, but what exactly is it saying? And she says, well, it's saying that you have about 11% chance now of surviving uh, over the next year. And I remember I went home, you know, climbed in my bed and just felt again many times, but this time really to the bottom of my soul, just hopeless. Like, you know, I'm doing everything I can. I'm fighting as hard as I can. But it just, it's not enough. I just, I I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it. I don't know if I can take it. And again, the world starts to go dim and you sit there and your thoughts are your worst enemies and fear takes over and you really have to hold it together. I mean, you have to really, you have to pull everything in and regain focus. And it's not easy. And during this time, again, I can't work much. I'm taking on more debt. My medical bills are growing. I'm having struggles in a business with a couple other owners, and things are just kind of getting out of control. And I'm not asking for pity. I'm just saying that when you're going through cancer, any little added extra detail of frustration or stress, it's just it's compounded by a thousand, and it makes it almost seem like it's impossible to deal with. But we're getting through it. And I I get to the last two months of my chemo, and I'm looking at two more months, and I I walk down into the kitchen one day, and I tell my wife, I can't, I can't do anymore. I can't do anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm going to snap. I'm, I'm falling apart. I just can't do it. So she said, well, go talk to your doctor. Uh, The next time I go and see him, I, I go in, I tell him where I'm at mentally, physically, 
And I said, well, let's do one more month. Let's cut it short at six months. You don't have to do the full seven months. And I've been going straight through it. And so I agree, okay, we'll do one more month. So go through that last month, and it is as brutal as it's ever been. It's kicking my butt as much as I wanted to kick it. And some great things happen during all of this. I mean, one thing, you really you prioritize. You really prioritize your life. You start to think about what's really important and what's not important. And so during that last month, I said, okay, we'll get through this. And then it's a waiting game. You know, you get through that last month of chemo, and then you got to keep going back in every three months for more tests, more blood work, more MRIs, more CT scans, PT scans, ABC scans, the works. You get it all. And what's funny is I feel good. I start to, I start to get stronger, and things are starting to get back to normal. And, and by the way, one of the inside notes here that people don't realize is during all this time, uh, you know, through the colon cancer, you can't have sex with your wife. And on chemo, you're like a zombie. You know, I am, I am Mr. Affectionate, lovey-dovey, always grabbing my wife, making out with her. And so from like 2008 to almost, you know, 2012, I was not the man she had married. I was the living dead. Very little intimacy, very little conversation. My wife had her own demons she had to battle during this time. But now after that last month, I'm starting to feel better. Not 100%, but I'm starting to feel better. So we get to a full year after my last chemo. And I go in and I tell my doctor, I'm still not feeling 100%. I don't know why, but something just isn't clicking. I said, after colon cancer, a couple months after that, I started to feel much better. And now I kind of expected the same after you know all the chemo with liver cancer. But I said, there's still something not working. Something is off. And so I said, I think we need to do another MRI. And... <laughs> I think we should go from, you know, the top of my head all the way down to my toes again. Because at this point, they were just scanning my chest down, you know, uh, to my waist. And so he sets it up and I go through it. And, and now I'm coming back in to get the results for that and all of the other tests that he did to make sure I'm still cancer-free. And the way it worked out that day, my family was meeting me at the doctor's office. So my mom and dad and my wife are already in the waiting room. And uh, I show up a few minutes late. And as I'm walking into the doctor's office, and you can't make this up, walking into the doctor's office, and my cell phone rings. And so I stop in the hallway. I answer it. Says, is this Garth Heckman? Yes, it is. This is the nurse from so-and-so clinic where you just had your MRI. And the doctor there wants to see you again because you have a brain tumor. And I literally swore out loud. I mean, I, I... just waved a big F-U in the middle of the hallway. And uh, it's about 20 more feet to the door to walk into the waiting room. And when my mom saw me walk in, she immediately knew something is wrong. And I sat down and she said, what's going on? I said, well, the other doctor just called and said that the MRI shows that I have a brain tumor. And we all just kind of sat there in silence. It's almost like, what, what else could possibly go wrong? My finances are a shamble. I'm in debt past my nose, barely breathing. My business has, has died like three times in a row. And every time I try to resurrect it, it dies again because of a sickness or an illness. 
And now here I am to get hopefully good news that the cancer is still in remission. But I get this phone call out of nowhere. Merry Christmas. You have a brain tumor. So we all pile into my oncologist's office and I tell him right away, I said, hey, the other doctor called and says, I have a brain tumor. And he's like, what? He said, uh, I, the first I've heard about it. And I said, yeah, I, I don't know what's going on. What do we have to do? And I'm, I'm right away thinking I've got to go through more chemo. And at that point, I'm like, I'm done. I'm not doing any more chemo. Uh, it's just not going to happen. It's not an option. So he picks up the phone in his office. He calls the other doctor's office. He's on the phone for a few minutes. He hangs up. He goes, okay. He says, well, A, to just call you like that is unfair. But he said, here's the deal. The brain tumor is benign. It's not cancerous. It was probably a tumor that was already in your head, and because of all the chemo the last three years, it probably irritated it, and it started to grow. Because all of us, we all have tumors in our bodies. There. Are you happy? Go to sleep with that on your mind. But our body can keep them in check. But every now and then, when you go through chemo, and like me, 16 months, 15 months of chemo, you can irritate one of those tumors, and it can start to grow. And that's what happened to this tumor in my brain. And so it's, uh, it's on my pituitary, and they said, well, if it continues to grow, it can affect your vision, hearing, headaches, all this stuff. So, you know, so then I had to go back in. I had to have more tests. And then they said, well, we're going to start you on a bunch of, different, uh, d- bunch of different drugs to hopefully shrink the tumor, which, by the way, not the brain, just the tumor, because I need all the brain I can get. And so I started that journey. And part of that was my hormones were now completely off kilter, which is why I wasn't feeling, you know, 100% anymore. And you go through this and you start to look at the last eight, nine years of your life and you go, wow, how do you ever get through this? How does one ever get through this? So then fast forward <laughs> just a couple of years after that, I was starting to feel better, starting to lift again, starting to do some more powerlifting meets, but I'd had so many surgeries that it started, uh, my abdominal muscles started to weaken because they'd been cut open so many times. And so I had had a massive hernia. Actually, it was all these bubbled hernias all over my stomach and to the tune of 14 hernias. So I had to go back in for complete abdominal reconstruction, which to be honest with you, was probably the most painful surgery of any of the ones that I'd gone through. And to the point of where, like, for weeks, I could barely take a deep breath. Uh, it, it was unbelievably painful. Got through that in 2015 and then started this whole new journey. Uh, so many things I've had to give up. I had to give up lifting heavy. I had to give up certain foods, different things that I love to do. And you may not know this, back right when I graduated from high school, I had the misfortune of diving into eight inches of water, and I broke my neck in three places. And, and that itself took away a lot of things in my life that I love to do. I had to have the halo vest, and then a few years after that, my arm started to go paralyzed. I had to have another surgery. And so you look back on life, and you go, man, it's not fair. Yeah, well, I don't know many people's lives who are fair. But in getting through all of this, there was a lot of lessons to learn. And I think the the first lesson that I look back on is I said, I don't want to waste these opportunities. I want to absorb and learn as much as possible in going through all of this. So 
how did I get through this? Well, I'm going to share with you how I got through this because I think anyone, whether you're an entrepreneur, businessman, housewife, doesn't matter, you can learn from the things that I learned. And I'll just, I'll just, it's a real short list, but this is how I got through the darkest time of my life. And the very first thing would be my faith. And I am a, I don't talk about it much on my podcast, but I'm a diehard Jesus freak. If you're not religious, that's okay. But I tell you what, if you go through this, you're going to find faith in something. And so my faith really helped put a foundation under me where I decided I'm going to get through this. I don't know how, but I'm going to trust in God and he's going to get me through this no matter what. And so my faith was absolutely foundational to getting through all of this. But secondly, and pretty, pretty close to number one would be my family. I have the most incredible family in the world. And, and if you think that about your family, then you are a lucky person. But my family, they went on you know, 24-7 overdrive to take care of me, to take care of my health, to fill in where they could, to help with my business, to do whatever they could to help me get through this season of my life. And it was a long season. It was, you know, about eight or nine years that they just knuckled down and helped me get through this. And my family was amazing. My boys were amazing. Everything was amazing. And it, it takes me back to just about any problem you're going to face. You have to have your family. If you have a strained relationship with your parents or your family, I would highly recommend you do whatever it takes to repair that because you're going to need them when you go through a test. And it's almost, almost impossible if you don't have your family with you to get through some of these things. The third thing would be my diet. I, I started the Gerson diet on my very first uh, cancer. I had some good friends, Jason and Joanna, who would do all the juicing for me and I mean, I drank kale juice and seaweed juice and broccoli juice and onions and, and everything I could get my hands on. I read a book called Anti-Cancer, which is an amazing book, and I just started juicing. And sometimes the juice was the only thing I could keep down. Sometimes I'd drink it and throw it back up, and, and that's just the way it was. But I juiced as much as I possibly could. And in fact, many times my doctor would tell me, man, you're the healthiest dying guy I know. You're the, you're the healthiest cancer patient I've ever had. A lot of that was just because of my diet. And there's a myth out there that if you're going through cancer, you know, eat whatever you're hungry for because you got to eat. And I, I totally disagree with that. You have to cut out sugar. You have to be very careful of stress. And you need to eat as much uh, whole, organic, natural vegetables and be really careful with your diet. The, the next thing that really helped me... <clears throat> And this is crazy because when I got colon cancer halfway through it, now I walk around comfortably at 275, 280. Uh, that's just my body weight as a power lifter. I'm not fat. I'm just well put together, big bone, 6'3". So I hold it well. But halfway through my colon cancer, the first time through, I literally got down to about 180. I looked horrible. And at Christmas time of that year, my nephew, God bless him, for a Christmas gift, uh, gave me, in fact, here's how it went down. After we opened up all our gifts, he pulled me into a back room and he said, listen, uh, Uncle Garth, I, I made something for you and I think it's really going to help you. And I said, okay. So I opened up this package and it's a huge package of homemade Reese's peanut butter cups, but they're, they're made with marijuana. And he said, it's really going to help you with all of your uh, all of your side effects and with your nausea and your headaches and panic attacks and everything. And, and I thanked him and I said, thanks, man. I appreciate it. But 
in my head, I was thinking, <clears throat> I was thinking, I'm not going to take these. I'm just not. That's you know, I've I've never been one to to support marijuana, medical use, anything like that. And again, it was all out of ignorance. And so about two months after that, I came upstairs. I tried to eat. I threw up all over. And my wife said, why don't you just try one of those candies? And I was like, nah, I don't want to. I don't want She said, just try one. So I went downstairs and uh, I ate one of these big, giant Reese's peanut butter cups, homemade. I don't know if Reese's wants me using their name or not. But anyway, it's, it was a peanut butter cup, chocolate, peanut butter. And you could taste the marijuana. It was, it was pretty heavy in there. But about 45 minutes later, I mean, I felt amazing. And I don't mean high. I just mean the anxiety was gone. The stress was gone. The panic attacks were gone. I was hungry. I went upstairs and ate. I didn't have the nausea. And it was right after that, I went in and I saw my oncologist. And I said, listen, um, I'm just going to tell you this in case it shows up on my blood work. I don't know if it would. But I said, I started eating marijuana candies and they've really helped. And, you know, we had a little bit of a conversation, but he ended by saying, it's the best thing you can do. He said, I would, I would continue to do that. And so one of the ways I really got through liver cancer was right away from the beginning, I started uh, eating a lot of different muffins and brownies that w- had marijuana in them. And they absolutely made a huge difference in my ability to cope with all the chemo, the anxiety and the stress. And in fact, in, in, in eating those, there are four different medicines that I didn't have to take because of what the marijuana did for me in place of it. So I'm a fan now of medical marijuana. Uh, By the way, if you can hear my dog in the background, he's snoring. So he's a fan too. Uh, And then the next thing, the last two things that really kind of tie together is, is really just your mindset. You know, when, when the doctor told me about liver cancer and said, you have less than five years, those first 24 hours, I, I was a basket case. I was like, what am I going to do? You know, five, five years. How am I going to enjoy this? What do I do? What's important? What, you know, what should I try to pull off in five years? And, and then after about 24 hours, you just kind of buckle down and you get this mindset and you're thinking, you know what? I don't care what the doctors say. I'm going to kick this thing's ass. I don't care if they said two years or two months, I'm, I'm not going to let it kill me. I'm just not. And that's kind of the mindset you have to make. And, and no matter how bad it got at times, I had to keep coming back to the fact that, no, I'm not going to die. I'm not. I'm not going to die. And so you have to get your mindset around that. And as an entrepreneur, really, you're going to face a lot of things where it's going to come down to your mindset. You're going to look at circumstances, at people, at your bank account. And there's a time and a place where you just have to go back deep inside your brain and you got to choose you got to choose. And in fact, one particular conversation I had with my oncologist, right after they said, you have an 11% chance of living, I was having this conversation with him and he looked at me and he, he gave me some of the best advice ever. He said, look, it's not about percentages. He said, quit thinking about percentages. He said, either you're going to live, <clears throat> sorry, I'm getting a little choked up. He said, either you're going to live or you're going to die. Which one do you want? And I said, I want to live. And he said, then that's what you focus on. He said, damn the percentages. You want to live, that's what you focus on. And I really took that to heart. And I really tried to keep my mind locked in. Last but not least, which is crazy, 
uh, in your in your chemo journey, they send you to a class. And they teach you about all the things with chemo and how to prepare for it. And, and my, my oncologist was fantastic. He's Dr. Gall here in Minneapolis. I highly recommend him to anybody. I would, I would take a bullet for that man. But he, you know, he taught me a lot. He said, keep your schedule. Keep the same schedule you always keep. If you work out in the morning, go work out. You may not be able to do it as long or as much weight, but do it. If you go to the office, go to the office. You may not be able to do as much work or stay there as long, but keep your routine. And that was, that was major. And that was all prep. But along with the prep, I also realized that I needed to have some things in line and set up before I started chemo especially the second time with liver cancer. So one of the things I did is I wrote myself a bunch of letters before I started the chemo because your mind is still thinking straight. And I I did this during liver cancer because I learned a lot from the first time with colon cancer. And I would write myself letters to the, to, and they'd say things like this. Look, the reason why you're reading this right now is because you feel like giving up. You feel like dying. You feel like throwing in the towel. You feel like quitting. You feel like it's going to get the best of you. And you're not going to let it. You're going to keep moving forward. So I wrote all these letters. I sealed them in envelopes. And then I kept them in my desk so that when I had a bad day, I'd open up one of those letters and I'd read it. I'd read it from me to me. But it was me when I was thinking straight. It did a lot. One of the other things is I, uh, I created a music playlist for just about anything I might go through. Whether it was, you know, hold on a second. Would you stop it? I'm trying to record. Hey, stop it. Sorry. Dogs, what are you going to do? I love them. But um, I made a music playlist for when I'd be going through chemo, when I'd come home and feel I'm um, like ready to throw in the towel. I made a playlist for when I'd uh, envision all my goals and dreams for the future. I make a playlist for when I'm angry of how I'm going to get through this. Just all these different playlists because music is such a powerful thing. It really helped get me through some of my darkest times. And in fact, when I would sit in my chair at the doctor's office and get plugged in for chemo, and the way that worked is I'd go in for a full day, I'd be plugged in, chemo going through me, and then I'd be sent home for three days with a pump connected to my chest. They put a port in your chest, and it then is wired right up to your jugular vein. Wonderful thought. But during those three days then, you'd constantly have this chemo pumped into your system. But I'd, I'd make these playlists, and when I'd be there for chemo during the day, I would put songs on my playlist that were being played in my mind to the, the cancer in my body. So there'd be a lot of death metal and hard rock, and, and uh, you know, one of my favorite songs was by Five Finger Death Punch, and you think you don't me, you, you know, the one line, you think you know me, you don't know shit, you know, and I'm singing this to the cancer, you know, if you, uh, you know, you know if you want to get through me, it's not going to work. I'm going to take you down. And, and as corny as it sounds, it, I think it really helped. I had all these songs. I'd be listening to them. And, and in a sense, I'd be singing them to the cancer cells. You're dying. You don't have a chance. You're not going to make it. And, you know, it helped. And, and with that, with all that prep, I continued to write down all my goals and all my visions for the future, what my future house is going to look like, how my future business is going to take off, what, how I'm going to spoil my future grandkids, and, and all these different things, because I had to keep hope alive. And that's one of the strongest things in all of this. You've got to keep your hope firing at 100%. Sure, there are times when you feel hopeless, 
But that's when you dig back down, you read through that list. Here are my goals. Here are my visions. Here are my dreams. And I will achieve these. I will get through this. And so I sit here today, you know, what is it? June 14th. I'm getting ready to celebrate my 53rd birthday in just a couple days. And as I look back on this, I realize, you know what? If I can get through the toughest time in my life, you can get through the toughest time in your life. You're never prepared for it, but you have to be ready for it. And I used to say this all the time. I would wish cancer on nobody, but everybody should have to go through it because of what it teaches you, the resolve it builds in you, the foundation it creates in you of who you can be and what you can get through. And when people tell me how tough life is, sometimes I bite my tongue and I don't say anything, but sometimes I just unload and say, you don't know what tough is, my friend. Again, I'm not a hero. But if I can get through it, you can get through it. So suck it up, buttercup. Put your helmet on, adjust your cup, and get ready because life is unfair. It's going to come at you like a raging bull from behind you and knock you down. And you have to, before it ever happens, have in your mind this this thought that I'm going to get through this. No matter what it takes, no matter how bad it gets, no matter what the doctor says, No matter what my bank account looks like, no matter how hard it is, no matter what my family says or friends say, I'm going to get through this. I'm going to make it. And you're going to make it. You can get through whatever you're going through. God forbid it's cancer. But whatever it is, you can stand your ground and you can fight and you can get through it. So I hope this was beneficial to you. Uh, it was for me and I tried to keep it short. There's so much more I could share and I won't, but if you have questions about this or anything else, please feel free to send them to me. Uh, I am, I, I, one of the things I love to do is to talk to people about cancer and their journey and going through it. But again, send your questions to scatterbrainquestions at gmail.com. If you have a friend or a family member or yourself that's going through cancer and you want some insight from me, I'd be more than happy to give it to you. Until next time, this is Garth Heckman at Scatterbrain. And remember, I can always be bribed with beef jerky and a good bottle of root beer. Which, by the way, somebody did just bribe me last week with really good root beer. So, shout out to Sambo. Thank you very much. Until next time, keep swinging. This is Garth Heckman, Scatterbrain. We'll see you later.